G'day, everyone. Welcome to Lubrication Experts. I'm very excited for uh, today's episode. With me, I have Mike Johnson. Now, if you've been in the industry for any stretch of time, you've probably come across an article that's been written by him or some of his work or a case study or something like that. So Mike's been in and around the industry for some 30 years now. He's the president and founder of Amory, as well as the founder of GSI, and has a wealth of practical lubrication experience to bring to the table. So very excited to ask him some questions, mainly around lubrication and precision lubrication. So uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. I look forward to this. Yeah, this is going to be really good. Um, Can I just maybe ask one question to get us started, which is you talk a little bit about, I've heard this term, precision lubrication. What exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, precision lubrication. For anyone that's actually carried a grease gun around the plant side or an oil bottle out to machines to top up machines, they, they would know that machine lubrication work is hot, grimy, dirty, tough, independent kind of work. So the notion of precision lubrication sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, a little bit odd. The machines, though, in order to operate at maximum efficiency, need to have a set of precise conditions. So this notion of precise lubrication follows along on the the skirt of reliability-centered maintenance or precision maintenance. With precision maintenance, we would recognize some foundational elements that must be in place in order for those machines to operate at their optimum efficiency and effectiveness over the course of time. Precision installation. We must have a suitable foundation and the the machine must be accurately affixed to that foundation. Precision alignment. Precision balance. We know how much imbalance and misalignment impacts machines. We can measure that. We can predict the effect of that. So we pursue precision installation, alignment, and balance. The fourth cornerstone is precision lubrication. Now, we can get those other three elements right, but if we don't do the machine lubrication, the daily care and feeding, with an equal degree of focus on quality and technical accuracy, and we're still not going to be running our machines to their optimal long-term productivity. Yeah, so, that's that's really interesting concepts. I sort of wonder sometimes, like with with lubricants, whether people view them as a bit of a blunt instrument, right? Like, and I yeah. wonder how much of that has to do with the fact that all the lubricants look the same. You spoke about things like alignment. Broadly speaking, I mean, with the tools that we have now, we can visually see when something is out of alignment. You know, even yep. some of these new motion amplification tools and things like that, you can you can physically see. Whereas with lubricants, you know, we we don't really see them in use. And when you pour a bottle of three twenty gear oil versus a, a bottle of one hundred hydraulic oil to the technician, they look identical. So there's, yeah. there, it doesn't seem like there's anything precision about it. Right. Then. We can't see what's happening in the invisible spaces between the machines. And, and failures related to machine lubrication are not instantaneous. They don't reach out and punch us in the face in a matter of minutes, unless we simply let the oil run out on the ground and the machine will shut itself down. But most of our failures are two, three, four years in the making. So people don't do a good job of connecting the dots 
between the quality of the works that they're executing and the effect on reliability for the machine. Yeah. We have a uh, uh, a phrase here in America. It's it's a negative phrase. It's related to a very simplistic view of machine lubrication. Oil's oil, grease is grease, it don't make no mind. And the first time I heard that phrase was a, a, a fellow that had the title of master mechanic 35 years ago at a paper mill in Tennessee where I live, where he and I were sitting. He was already a customer for the company I hired into. And I was talking about this and that and you know product applications, trying to expand the, the uh, intensity of products in the plant. And he cuts me off after a couple of minutes and says, boy, let me tell you, oil's oil, grease is grease. It don't make no mind. Have you got anything else you want to say? <laughs> and smart ass said, I am. I said, yes. Is there anyone else here I can speak with? <laughs> and he escorted me out of the office and, and I didn't do business for that anymore. <laughs> But that's a horribly simplistic attitude, but people can't connect the dots between what they're doing and the effect on mechanical reliability. It's measurable. We can measure and we can define the consequence and it's not even that difficult, but we got to understand what it means to measure, how to measure, and then how to make a corrective action. And if we don't pour some effort into this thing, we just don't get optimized reliability that we need for our production site. That's really interesting. Um, I, I always find it a challenge, you know, to to convince people of the value of lubricants and, and lubrication, right? Because as right. you said, the failures often creep up on you. And uh, in many instances, if you're not looking for it, you may not link the machine failure to a failure of your lubrication program, right? You you just think, oh, this, this failure came out of nowhere, when in yep. reality... The, the lubricants have not been treated with the correct care and attention over a period yep. of six months or so. Yep. Exactly right. So maybe one of the questions uh, to get us started and give us some practical advice for the audience would be um, where, where do you typically see the most bang for buck on the sites that you go to? We've talked a little bit about that sort of knowledge gap, but there's also a, a gap in practice. So where oh, are the yeah. gaps between you know, where we are versus where we could be and some of those easy wins that we can sure. use to demonstrate the value of uh, of lubricants. Well, let me, let me divide that into uh, maybe the behavioral element program management and the technical element of program management. <clears throat> but the behavioral element in my part relates to the equipping of the workforce to go out and do the job technically, accurately, efficiently and effectively so that we, we give the machines an optimized effect. We're trying to float our industrial livelihood on an oil film that is the thickness of a red blood cell. Literally, one and a half, one half to one and a half micron thick oil layer for element bearings, three to five microns thick for our journal bearings and other sliding surfaces. And we can't really perceive what that means. As long as that oil film is intact and it's clean and it's dry and it's chemically healthy, that oil film, that red blood cell thick layer of protection will do its job. Well, we know from research from MIT and lots of other studies around the world that 
machines lose their usefulness due to adhesive wear, abrasive wear, corrosive wear, and fatigue primarily. That's related to what's happening in that very thin layer of protection. So companies need to grow to an understanding of what is actually protecting their machines. And then for the behavioral component, they need to have a plan that is a written plan that is technically accurate. It's wrapped around the operating state of the machines and takes the operating environment into consideration and gives them the means to follow the five R's, right? Mm -hmm. Right product, right quantity, right place, right time, right attitude. And the fifth R in my mind is attitude. It is how we go about addressing this, this very important job. Uh, we here in America, and, and from what I've seen in uh, the places that I've visited around the world, Australia, India, Brazil, Canada, to a slight extent uh, in Northern Europe, but but uniformly, we don't have well-defined, technically accurate, efficient, effective work plans and writing for technicians to use. Historically, that's not been so much of a problem here in America. Historically, we have gone out into the Nebraska cornfield and found that farmer who needed a second job and brought him into the shop. And here's a man that has great mechanical intuition understands machines, understands how to make things work. And we take that guy without a formal education on reliability and or asset health, asset care, and put him into the workforce. And it worked because the innate knowledge was there, the the uh, self-determination, the motivation to do a job well was there. And, and we used to have an abundance of those persons that we can plug and play. So we hand them a sheet of lubricants and say, there's your machines, go get them, boy. And they were able to do that. Well, as the years have gone by, the industrial workforce has substantially shrunk. The education system in America is waving the flag at everybody to suggest that they shouldn't go work in a manufacturing plant because, you know, that's hard, dirty work. And uh, you're grabbing a bolt out of a box and screwing it onto a uh, a nut out of a box and screwing on the bolt all day, every day for 30 years. And they'll drive you insane. And, and if that's all there was to it, I would agree that would, that would be discouraging. But a consequence of that kind of focus by our educational system has kids who really are not good candidates for university, really are good candidates to go into the workforce and plug into these roles and have a successful, viable, financially healthy career. Those kids aren't are, are not present. We have a problem of lack of labor, willing labor, I should say, and within that willing labor, lack of knowledge. And because of that, when we try to plug and play somebody into a work plan that says machine XYZ, grease the bearings, make sure oil's there, there's simply not enough detail. So behaviorally, there's an element that is harming us, I would argue, to a substantial extent. We need to have in the spirit of uh, ISO 55000, machine component specific, operating context specific, written work plans that are prescriptions for what can get accomplished that represents a very high quality standard 
I hate to use the term best practice because that's going to vary from what one plant can accomplish to another, but a high quality performance standard around this. Mm. We don't have that strike number one. With regard to the the technical selection application of lubricants, mm. our oil companies do a, a pretty good job helping our customers figure out what needs to go where for the oil selection. And then they largely leave it up to the customer to maintain the level and you know do a, a level uh, uh, oil sample periodically to make sure that oil is healthy and uh, run a filter card periodically if they want to make it last longer and, and those kinds of things. We don't do as well with the grease lubricated machines. Now grease is a more complex product by fair measure. People have a misunderstanding of what grease is and how it's actually going to work within the machine. As it turns out, we know that it's the oil from the grease that is going to provide that red blood cell thick layer protection. Too often, the customers are experimenting with, with what products they have on site. They mix and match, which harms them. They've got a big machine running at high speed and they think, wow, that's a heavy machine. So therefore I need to go get that, that grease that's made with heavy oil. Again, a knowledge problem. So we, we do self-inflicting injuries a lot of the time with our grease selections. Um, I think also technically contamination control understanding, particularly impact that, uh, uh, Aqueous-based solutions and or just plain old water, negative impact that has on the lubricant itself. We don't quite understand that well enough. We're not aggressively focused on contamination control. And in terms of a single thing that I believe customers might be able to do if they just focused on just one thing with regard to what they're doing with lubrication management, they don't have a plan they're not confident about products they've selected. If they just focus on contamination control, that would serve them amazingly well. Yeah, you've brought up a couple of really good points there. I mean, the personnel issue is actually something that we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast. You know, that the the lack of uh, knowledgeable workers, and even yeah. and even to the extent of okay, a lot of the manufacturing industries are not as quote unquote desirable, right, to go into anymore. But also the fact that most of the time when I visit sites, I can say with let's say 99% confidence, I can predict that when I go onto site, the lubrication technician is usually the bottom of the stack. Yeah. You know, he's the person, he or she, to be honest, I've seen uh, increasingly yeah. a number of uh, uh female technicians. They they tend to be not very well regarded their advice isn't taken you know they don't they don't get that same sort of care and attention they see very little training and like you said you know they are in charge of a part of the precision maintenance program and yet they they receive um so little focus so in if that person receives so little focus is it any wonder that the lubrication program you know receives also so little focus right um so that's part right. of it and then when you also talked about the lube oil selection and stuff, I think it, you know, very much, yeah, the the, the lube oil companies are, are tending to do a, a pretty decent job about that. I think the problem has become increasingly that as the the, the large oil companies start to step back out of their roles in, in terms of, uh, let's say, field services, 
increasingly we're seeing a lot of end users have to rely on the OEM recommendation, which I don't know, in, in my experience, sometimes not, not great. You know, I, I I was literally just visiting a cement plant yesterday where the, the manufacturer of these gearboxes, right, they're worm, worm drives with bronze gears and they had re- re- the entire recommendation book was heavily EP laden gear oils. Yeah, that's a mistake. And, and you sort of go, look, you know, you put your tinfoil hat on and <laughs> and and you you give the cynical take, which is, oh, well, they just want to sell more gearboxes. Right, right, right. Right. But but it's obviously not in the interest of the customer. And because the customers don't have that focus on lubricants, they don't they can't spot those those issues when they when they arise. So like right. you said, it, it's it, it's hugely challenging. But if we can start with the contamination control program, then yeah, I, I can see that yielding huge benefits. But the next step, I guess, is how do you convince businesses to get on board with the idea of precision lubrication? Because yeah. it's so it's multifaceted, right? You've got to get the field staff on board. There's a level of management that needs to get on board with the program as well. And then you might have adjacent departments like procurement, for example. So you and I, we kind of see the benefits right, of, of precision lubrication, but have you found any effective tools for getting entire businesses on board? Yeah. Um, this, this goes back to my very early days in, in this career path that I didn't really know was going to be a career path when I jumped into it. I had a boss, uh, the mentor that I would only hope that my children what would be able to have in their early professional years. This guy was great. And he was my manager of uh, a branch that was selling Malubaloy, high-performance lubricants. That brand is now owned by BP slash Castrol. He was there out of an experience that he had for several years running electrical apparatus manufacturing facility, a family business, where he saw the value of very high quality lubricants and and lubrication practices. So he was managing industrial facility. He saw the value of what could be done when that family business was sold. He went to work at this company called Imperial Oil and Grease, going out to customers, selling the value of very high quality machine lubrication. And he was, because he was a senior manager and a financial manager, he got me oriented towards the notion of the value proposition and how to go about skipping over the objections that you're going to find at the purchasing department where, hey, that product is, that's 30 cents a gallon more than I'm already spending. I can't do that. That's crazy. Well, so that's irrelevant. And and what the company, what the industrial site spends on an annual basis on lubricants, net total, it's less than a rounding error for the health of the organization. If you think about it, let's say a manufacturer, let's say a cement plant, let's say 15% of the operations budget is dedicated to maintenance. And if they're dialed in well in their maintenance practices, that's going to be about what they're spending on an annual basis. Senior financial manager looks at that 15% and says, hmm, well, we got to do better. Within that 15%, 1% of the maintenance budget 
is allocated to the lubricant purchases. Three to 5% of the maintenance budget is related to application labor, the lubrication technician's role in management. So the 1% is clearly a rounding error on the 15%. It's much, much less than a, just a rounding error on the total operational budget. My favorite boss, Carl P. Owens Jr., convinced me very early on, and we don't want to talk about oil and grease. We want to talk about money. You've seen the American movie, Jerry Maguire, the famous line, show me the money, <laughs> show me the money. So as I progressed through my career, and particularly since, uh, well, the last 20, 22 years, the starting point for us has been when the customer calls and says, we're not very good at this. We need help. What do you, you know, what, what can you do? Our starting point is to say, well, you don't know how good you are until you measure the job that you're doing. How do you know which way to face to make improvements if you don't know which way you're already facing? So that begs the question, let's measure your, your program. Let's do a benchmark. Let's do a gap analysis. Let's look at the lubrication process systematically. There's, there's, uh, there's nine elements that we have in our benchmark routine, nine areas where we're going to inspect, we're going to quantify the current practice against an arguable world-class or, or best practice uh, and, and give them a objective, thorough assessment of the state of their lubrication program. Now, in and of itself, that will tell management where we're good, where we're not good. We get this pretty little diagram, a multidimensional diagram with, you know, spikes in the circle and all the kind of stuff that says, well, we're really good at the safety health and uh, uh, environmental aspects of the lubrication program. We're really good at oil analysis, but we're not really good in these other areas. So then we can focus our time on the areas where we're weak. That improvement process might be initiated by a reliability manager or a maintenance manager who's aware, conscientious, really wants to make it happen. Make it make it a inherently supportive, reliability-sustaining activity out of the maintenance department. But that guy moves on, and if that program isn't recognized all the way up the authority line in the company, if it's not visibly, vocally supported by level management, the chances of it falling apart after that strong man takes another job, moves up in responsibility, chance of it falling apart is pretty good. So for that reason, we want to drag senior level management into this discussion. Now, senior level management, they couldn't give a hoot about what oil and grease is being used. That's a low level decision. Purchasing guy takes care of that. Maintenance guy takes care of that. That's not part of their interest. They're there to make sure the company is financially viable. To that end, if we can't turn this into dollars and cents, if we can't show them how they can justify putting some effort and money into making substantial upgrades, then it, it just, in my opinion, is in my experience, it's just not going to happen. And if it does happen too often, it's a very short-term improvement opportunity. So when we do a benchmark, we have uh, a review session at the end of the benchmark week with senior level management. We want to get the site manager, the site production manager, 
the site maintenance manager, those three financially responsible individuals, and then whomever else with technical responsibilities. We want to get them all in a room. We want to get them all present and hearing the same message that's coming from us about the quality or lack thereof of their work practices. But the single most important part of that exercise is a financial analysis and turning what we see, what we have collected from the maintenance manager during a one-on-one interview, turning his understanding of the cost impact of lubrication into a five-year net present value improvement opportunity. We got to show them the money. If, if there's no return on investment, if it can't be documented and measured and, and put in black and white in front of them, then they should not really be considering this. Their job is to make sure the company remains competitive and is financially viable. They're measuring lubrication effectiveness, but the most important part of that is measuring financial viability of the initiative to make improvements. The imperative to put it in a language that senior management is going to understand uh, and care about, to be yep. to be honest. Um, that That's a really good tip. So do you see any particular places maybe it's a specific segment of the industry or maybe even a specific country that happens to do lubrication really well or can you think of specific organizations that have really got their lubrication program dialed in and kind of help us understand how did they go about that journey and what can we learn from them? Yeah. Well, boy, that's a tough one. Um, we work with a handful of Fortune 100 manufacturing entities that, that size companies that have had corporate engineering personnel available and responsible, subject matter experts available and responsible for driving the improvement process. Here in America, th those people are called staff. Now that's not necessarily a dirty word, but oftentimes the people at the operational level see the staff guy come in, oh no, here comes Bob from corporate again. He's going to tell me what I need to do. Um, and and there's not a lot of sensitivity to the uh, the outsider coming in and saying, here, you know, this this is the best way to go. You should do this. So it's not a problem with the organization. You need to have engineers with subject matter expertise. You need to have, I shouldn't just say engineers, personnel with subject matter expertise that can truly lead and, and guide and make substantial improvement recommendations. Got to be Got to be part of the organization. But at the operational level, there's a whole lot of not made here kind of sensitivity. Not, you know, this is not our program. This is your program. So uh, I'm not really interested in it. That's a operational challenge. And once again, I spoke earlier about the notion of the senior management supporting what we are attempting to do here visually and vocally in order for a change in plan to become a long-term systematic opportunity. So companies, yeah, Cargill Corporation, uh, this is privately owned company, multinational, multi-business, privately owned company. I believe it's the largest or maybe the second largest privately owned company in the world. Um, 
at least last last time I had a discussion about this with a Cargill guy, it, it was, you know, and it, it changed all the time. But I was involved with Cargill in 1998 when they launched their initiative to um, deploy vibration analysis condition monitoring activities in their largest by plant size, largest business unit. Um, it was a, a big meeting, very thoughtful, three-day uh, vendor grilling, technical representation with a, a clearly understood expectation that all the plant sites that were there, nine large production sites present, listening to the presentations and the discussion, all that they were all going to do this. And senior management was there and senior management said, we are going to do this. So here's three vendors with credible technologies. You guys have to make the decision who you want to work with. You make the decision, you pick a vendor, but whoever you choose, you're going to live with it and you're going to do this. Now, I think that's vitally important for any of this stuff that we would consider uh, relatively new technologies, technological deployment for industrial maintenance, mining, manufacturing, maintenance. There must be strong leadership involved in this. Change all by itself is hard. Changing from what we've always done, 35 years worked here, we've always done it this way. Change away from that is particularly difficult if what we've always done has supported the success that a site has, but we have to do better. And so senior management has to press the issues on that. Um, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Cargill because um, one of the things that I always find interesting when you go onto the ICML website, for example, and you look at the exams that are being done, most of the exams sessions are generic, right? Sydney, Australia is going to have a session. Anyone who wants can attend. Yep. And then every now and then you see specific businesses yep. right, that are having their own sessions. Yep. And you kind of get the picture that they must have taken their lubrication program so seriously that they require a number of people to be ISO CAT 1, CAT 2, CAT 3 certified. And that warrants them having their own exam session. And the Cargills of the world, you know, you often see uh, they're sort of the usual suspects, but I've even seen the likes of uh, Chobani, you know, the the yogurt manufacturer. Yeah. Um, and so it's really interesting to see when a business very clearly gets on board with that kind of thinking. Yes, and speaking favorably of Cargill, they are one of a handful of customers that have decided to make a corporate policy of certification for technicians, i.e., Yes, you can come into this role and you have one year to become qualified via certification. It's, you know, the class we teach is a combination MLT, MLA level one class. So, uh, you know, we'll go through a four-day session and line people up to try to knock down the bowling ball pins. And, and it works pretty well. Dome Tar Corporation, major paper manufacturer, Georgia Pacific Corporation, uh, I don't know if international paper is still there. They, once upon a time, they were. Uh, uh, Ingredion, a uh, intermediate food products producer. Uh, let me see. Those those are three key customers that stipulate to their personnel, hey, you're going to do this. 
you you might as well not worry about whether you're going to do it because you're going to do it or you're going to find a different job. That takes that takes senior management to to step up to the table, show a little bit of guts and fortitude, and lead. But we need leadership. That's a good thing when we have it. Yeah, you you in your question you ask about uh, examples of uh, companies. So those companies I mentioned, I believe, are systematically in pursuit for the whole of the organization pursuing reliability-centered maintenance objectives and, and work practices, including machine lubrication. Many years ago, I was sitting in a cement plant in Tennessee, sitting late in the afternoon with the maintenance manager. Just, just talking about what I was there to do, and this is a plan I've been working with for several years on improvements, and I'm just going in every other week doing inspections, making recommendations, and the guys there are carrying the water. They are there doing the yeoman's work to make sure that they're getting the best results out of lubrication. So I'm sitting there with a maintenance manager that I hired in as a reliability engineer into this plant site. Um, maintenance manager left, went to corporate office, and this guy moved up the line and, and inherited the job of maintenance manager after several years working the plant. And I was sitting there talking to this guy, and the guy from Motion Industries, it's a local branch manager, knocks on the door while we're sitting there, sticks his head in and says, John, hi, good to see you again. Look, I want to see if we can set an appointment so I can come by and find out what we did wrong and see if we can earn your business back. My friend, John, says, I don't really understand what you're talking about. We're not buying stuff from somebody else. Branch manager says, and I wish I could put this into dollar value around what they were doing. Branch manager says, okay, well, that's kind of hard to understand because you're you're not really spending any money with us at all. And you used to buy lots of stuff and you're just not spending any money. And John says, oh yeah, well, that's right. We're, we're getting everything we get from you. We just don't need as much stuff now as we used to. Holy smokes. What, what kind of economic value statement can I possibly squeeze out of that conversation? And I tried, but, but corporate office wasn't really willing to share their financial results or change in financial results with the world. You know, it had become a competitive lever. This, this production site, was doing fabulously well, and they were willing to hide their secrets. But I, I so wish I had the means to quantify the financial impact for this company. They're focused on cost of manufacturing per ton of cement produced. And they're doing a lot of things, including a lot of work with machine lubrication. It wasn't all machine lubrication. It was the attitude that they had. And being willing to go above and beyond, installing filtration systems, continuous filtration systems on all their critical assets, for instance. You're talking about $1,500, $2,000 per asset times 60 assets, the cement plant. And they did that out of maintenance budget, and they didn't have to do that. They did it because the conversation with them, we concluded it was the right thing to do to their critical assets. That equals money in the back pocket for the long haul. It's yeah, hard to quantify. It's hard to get companies to put down in writing over a three, four, five-year period the change in you know, gearboxes, chains, bearings, hydraulic components, all that kind of stuff. But 
when we can figure out how to protect through our uniformly applied, well-developed, machine-specific, operation-specific work practices in such a way that we can maintain that one micron film of oil between the machine's working parts, we win. We will always win. And the net effect of that is seen in reduced cost, reduced instance of repairs. If the machines are running longer, they're producing better. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, certainly something to uh, to aspire to for everyone. <laughs> As we wind up here, I always like to look a little bit to the future. Um, so with precision lubrication, what do you see as being the future of precision lubrication? Are there any exciting technologies, software, enablers uh, that you think look promising? Is it that we just have to refine what we already have? You know, because there's an argument that a lot of industry isn't really applying those attitudes that you've already talked about, right? So there's already some low-hanging fruit. But what do you see as being the future of precision navigation? I will, again, divide this into organizational opportunities and technological opportunities. Mm. Uh, Start with organizational. In Australia, in India, in Brazil, uh, in, in Europe to some extent, um not so much here in america although we're warming up to it but in those countries in particular there is a cultural history of having a specialized contractor focused on machine lubrication so we have the lube contractor and this is particularly popular in brazil as i've had the chance to stomp around brazil a fair bit i've come to believe in the value of that dedicated specialized contractor so that there's one reliability engineer or and or supervisor managing person at the plant that is the liaison to that contractor. And that contractor is 100% focused on following the plan and getting it right. Organizationally, that focus is highly valuable. We don't do that here in America because of uh, union constraints and interests. Uh, this job is still considered a, a privileged job for the union that's uh, responsible for the maintenance department. And they're, they're going to fight for that, that privileged job. And I believe as headcount issues continue to expand upon us, and we show up week after week, and we don't have enough people to run the machines, much less repair them, that this more or less low-level kind of position that we talked about in your experience and my experience, this low-level position is going to become a specialized contract. I believe it should. I believe there's great value there. Um, organizationally, I would say that represents a bright future. Technologically, uh, we have more and more companies jumping on, jumping into production of instrumentation that can be used for continuous analysis of lubricants or top tier criticality. You know, let's call it the top 20%. Those Condition monitoring tools, which will send information to the engineer's cell phone on, you know, at the top of a button, is going to give, is going to get us much closer to the cause and effect between something's wrong with the machine and the machine has failed through the lens of machine lubrication. I think that will be highly valuable. Um, There's uh, new technology in the old single point lubricator 
where some folks have taken uh, compression wave analysis sensor, uh, spike energy and or peak view and or whatever your flavor is, but compression wave analysis that, that occurs when asperities are colliding and tied that sensor to the single point lubricator. Have you seen these? This is brilliant. Yeah. This is yep. what I've been wanting to see for 20 years. If I was smart <laughs> enough to actually create it, I would have. That's that is a great tool. So once again, for our critical assets, and particularly for those assets that are turning, uh, when when we calculate the interval for replenishment, we come up with something that's seven days or less. These are big parts turning real fast. That's that's a fantastic application. The lubricant quality has improved so much across the board from when I first entered this market. It's it's uh, just use a simple metric, the toast value that we see on hydraulic and circulating oils, ASTM D943, used to be when I entered this field, it was a thousand, maybe you'd see a 2000 hour toast test. Now everybody's got toast test values in the six to 8,000 hours. That's fantastic. So the potential, the potential for the continuous improvement in the technological merits of the lubricant, I think is is also a huge lever for us. Um, all of those things combined, automation. I mean, we've had automatic automatic systems technology available to us for a century, and we're just not using it. Now, if you think about what the guy is doing with a grease gun, if he's not careful, he's dragging the nose of the grease gun in the cement dust as he moves from one side of the plant to the next, and then starts pushing grease through that grease gun, you know, that bearing cavity is introducing exceptionally effective rubbing compounds to the bearing elements and destroying the machine. So I, I wish I could say that's uncommon, unfortunately, if we could automate much of what we're doing. So our focus is on making sure the automation is working properly <coughs> and that we have properly selected lubricants. I think we would have a big win there as well. So the multifaceted answer, in my opinion. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the next 10 or so years of my remaining career. Oh, potentially a lot longer than that. <laughs> we'll see. No. We'll see. Now, um, it would be remiss of me not to uh, to mention, so we talked a lot about precision lubrication today. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, Amory is actually about to, in the next week or so, launch a online magazine called right. precision lubrication yep. so it's obviously very important to you guys as a as a concept and something that you're trying to get out there but maybe to ask uh what are you guys hoping to achieve with this publication and who's it really aimed at who who you expecting yeah. would get a lot of value out of the publication when i do my training classes uh I'll start the class off by saying to whomever's present, managers, engineers, technicians, right? guys, this is the single most important daily activity this plant has to do. This, this maintenance department has to do. The single most important daily thing you have to do here. And to be fair, there's all kinds of things that constantly have to be done, but all kinds of things are not going to shut you down in three years. If you if you fail to execute with faithfulness, and the managers will snicker and say, all right, guy's an idiot. But I really believe that to be the truth. 
this thing, the daily care and feeding of machines is vitally important to optimized, highly competitive manufacturing. Who do we want to reach? All of those people, senior managers, mid-level managers, corporate subject matter experts, the technicians and maintenance supervisors at the plant site. <clears throat> we want to connect with all of them. We have uh, a team, and I'll call it a team, that, of world-renowned subject matter experts that are part of this editorial board that are providing content for us. So um, it, it is another mechanism that we hope to use to expand the knowledge base that we so desperately need to have expanded. Right now, between Mike and I, we got about 30,000 contacts between the two of us, including our CRM and our LinkedIn pages. So I know we're reaching a tiny little audience, but hey, you got to start somewhere. And um, I, I believe for both of us, particularly with our LinkedIn accounts, these are people that along the way have said, yeah, I, I kind of like to hear what you have to say. And and you mentioned the you know articles that have written along the way. I've, I've done a lot of publishing, and once again, need to get that information back out in front of people. So, our hope is, our ambition is that we will have a chance to expand the knowledge base for our customers, and as they move around, perhaps have the chance to meet new people as well. Yeah, that'd be that'd be awesome. Uh, definitely well worth it. And to be honest, that's really aligned with what this channel is all about, right? And trying to get the uh, the information out there in an accessible way. Um, I was lucky enough to be asked to contribute to the first edition. Uh, and so I encourage everyone who's listening to, to seek out, uh, it'll be online, uh, Precision Lubrication Magazine. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good thing. So Mike, uh, really appreciate your uh, insight and your knowledge. Thank you for sharing that with us today. It's been a really good chat. I'm sure that the audience is going to get a lot out of it. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. And we'll wait until next time. I appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for the opportunity to visit with you and your audience. And uh, I look forward to uh, another another dose of this if we can make it happen. Sounds good.